I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. Coming up on The Trade Guys, we'll discuss Tariff Man's new tariff plan. We'll talk about the latest on Section 232 at the WTO, and no Trade Guys episode is complete without a discussion of tin mill steel. All on the next episode of The Trade Guys. Trade Guys, we're all three back. I'm back from my summer excursions. You guys are in the house. We won't be here next week, but we're here this week. Some of us never went away, Andrew. I mean, speak for yourself. But we are tanned, rested, and ready. I am tanned, rested, and ready for sure, and I know Scott is. But first, Scott, you have something you want to say. Yes, uh, correction from last week's episode. Uh, We did a segment on infant formula and the fragility of the supply chain and sort of ongoing problems. I mentioned that the initial outages happened at a plant in Sturgis, Michigan. That part is correct. The part that was incorrect was I attributed that plant's ownership to both Abbott and Mead Johnson. It turns out I was wrong. It is an Abbott plant. Mead Johnson is a competitor. Mead Johnson is owned by Record Benckiser, a UK company. In any case, I uh, regret the error. And we have a fabulous audience who keeps us honest and always writes in and tells us when we do something like that, that just is flat wrong. So I'm happy to get it right. The recording has been amended, and we can move on from there. Thanks to the audience. That's very good of you, Scott, and it's very good of our audience. We love our audience, and please do keep writing us and telling us what you think, and you know you know where to find us anytime. The risk, of course, though, is if you tell us what you think, we'll tell you what we think. <laughs> that may not be the same. You may be subject to a Bill Reinch rant on the other end of your query. Well, we got a great show today, and we have got to kick it off with, of course, Tariff Man, former President Donald Trump, has proposed a new ring around the United States economy. On Fox Business on Thursday, Trump called for setting this tariff at 10% automatically for all countries. Guys, what do you think of this? Oh, my goodness. Well, first, uh, all I could think of was the whisk long due detergent commercial with the ring around the collar. And... Uh, Having, uh, having competed against uh, uh, Unilever and Whisk for a number of years, it, it set a chill up my spine. In any case, that said, uh, look, first point, I, I ought to mention to our more recent uh, subscribers that this podcast owes its very being to President Donald Trump. He started talking about trade policy, putting it on the front page of newspapers, and voters had no idea what he was talking about for the most part because the experts at the time were talking in, in code. We had lots of acronyms and uh, and abbreviations and not much clarity. So that's why there's a Trade Guys podcast. So we're always appreciative of what he's done for us. At the same time, the proposal itself, it's pretty bad for America when you step back from it. A 10% tariff on all import goods would have at least three pretty immediate, obvious effects. First, it'd slow down the economy. We know over time, open economies grow faster than closed economies. So you start to close down the economy with tariffs, you'll slow it down. Not good. Second, it'll fuel inflation. This adds basically 10% to the price that consumers pay for any imported good. 
And given that a, a trillion dollars of what the United States imports are what we call intermediate goods, that is the things we use to make other things. So a trillion dollars of intermediate goods, what that would mean if we had a 10% tariff on all those goods, it would reduce the global competitiveness of U.S. manufacturing. Not increase it, reduce it. So bad, 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 three strikes, you're out. And look, I think it's important that we defend open markets at a time like this because one of the things I learned from President Trump's 2016 campaign is when he said something about economic policy, he usually meant it. I remember talking to Ted Alden, who's a friend of Bill and a friend of the show. Ted uh, was doing reporting at the time, appeared at a campaign event in Pittsburgh where the president, where then candidate Trump talked very directly about using Section 232 of the Trade Act of 1962 to put national security tariffs on steel. And as they say, they all laughed when he got off the stage, Or, but uh, he actually did that. And we'll talk about more effects of that a little later. But look, overall, tariff man costs the United States about $80 billion in higher tariffs during his first term. I have no doubt that he would try to repl replicate the McKinley Tariff Act if he could. And we would think that would be really bad for voters and bad for Americans. Well, you know, I agree with everything he said, Scott said, but I can't resist bringing in a, a, another factoid for people to consider that, if nothing else, suggests it's it's complicated, and it's more complicated, I think, than economists make it out make out to be. We'll probably do a future episode on this, which is the onslaught of cars, uh, particularly electric vehicles, that uh, the Chinese are now sending to Europe, and there's a lot of things to say about that. Uh, the, I think the European car companies seem to be unprepared for this. But the Chinese EVs are, are cheap, and they don't have a lot of European competition. And there's a lot of concern in Germany and France in particular that they're going to take over the market. That is not happening here. And the reason it is not happening here is because there's a 27.5% tariff on automobile imports. 2.5% of that is is the most favored nation tariff that we charge everybody, 25% of that is a Trump tariff left over from China. So should we get rid of it from a macroeconomic standpoint? Yes. And if we did, what will happen is we will be buried in cheap EVs from China. So that creates a, a dilemma. Uh, what do you want to do about the American automobile industry? Are they in better shape than the German uh, and French automobile industries and are better prepared to compete with cars that are subsidized by China and will no doubt be dumped by China as well? So there are some trade tools to deal with them. But th those trade tools tend to come pretty far down the road. I mean, you have to be in bad shape before you can win those cases. So it's ironic that a proposal or an action that Trump took that has been condemned by almost everybody, in fact, right now, is saving our automobile industry. Yeah, let's think about that for a moment. Scott, what, what are your thoughts? Well, maybe it's saving in the short term. But look, there's a tremendous amount of foreign transplant production in the United States. There's a Vietnamese company who's making electric vehicles, electric cars in North Carolina, Kia, Hyundai, and many of the, many of the uh, Asian and European nameplate automakers make vehicles in the United States already. Almost all of them have electric vehicles planned. Clearly, the market leader is Tesla, which is an American company. We no doubt will get at some point 
cars from China. And uh, that will be a competitive issue that the industry will have to deal with. My view is the industry needs to survive on its own. Uh, otherwise, it'll, be, it'll, it'll become a, a diminished sort of ward of the state. But it, it, I understand the short-term benefits for this sort of, kind of thing. But what former President Trump is proposing, though, is a 10% tariff on all imports, all imports. And that's a very different situation than sort of selective managing industry by industry. Yeah, I'm not defending it. It's a terrible idea. But if you look micro level, not macro level, it's going to have different effects in different sectors. Yes, it'll have some winners. There's no doubt. If you're really serious about being the electric vehicle industry, though, you got to get the transaction price down. Right at the moment, those car buyers can't, who are the median car buyer can't afford the median electric car at this point, even with subsidies. You know, there's a further irony to this, too, that we should also talk about in the future. We went through this with Japan in the 80s, you'll recall, with major Japanese imports and a lot of congressional threats threats to impose quotas, tariffs, all these things. Uh, We went through the, Scott and I both went through the car wars then. And the Japanese response was instructive. The Japanese response was to do what uh, Scott alluded to, which is to create manufacturing facilities in the United States. So you've got uh, Honda was, I think, the first one. You've got Toyota. For a while, you had Mitsubishi. I'm not still sure they're still doing that. And, of course, now that's spread to the Koreans. You've got Kia and Hyundai, all manufacturing here. And in the process of doing that, of course, they created a lot of jobs mm-hmm. and domestic constituencies that favor foreign cars. And because, you know, they, these cars have some imported components, Although I have to say a few years ago, I think the, the car with the highest percentage of American content was a Toyota Camry, which tells you how far the, the industries has become integrated over time. But it raises the question, do you think the Chinese would follow the same strategy and start Chinese manufacturing EVs in the United States? I suspect, number one, no, they won't, because that's not the way they approach this sort of thing. And I think, number two, right now we have a wave of states passing legislation to prevent any Chinese from buying farmland, or any land for that matter. So even if they wanted to, I don't think that we'd let them. Probably right. But uh, we're likely to see the imports at some point. So we'll have to see how this plays out in Europe. It's an interesting point. Well, that's the question I have, guys. How would our economic allies and partners react to the proposed policy of a universal baseline tariff? Oh, they'd be horrified. Yes. And very upset. I would think. What gets lost in the debate about this is the retaliation. You know, if we do that, we are violating a lot of rules, WTO rules in particular. We are opening the door for other countries to do exactly the same thing to us. So what we discovered when Trump imposed the tariffs and the Chinese had retaliated was that's what happens. And some companies, manufacturing companies, uh, basically took a double hit because the price of their parts and components went up because of Trump's tariffs. And the price of their end product that they wanted to export to China went up because of Chinese retaliation. You know, it hit some of our guys in from both directions. Yeah, look, the action, the action in the first place would be harmful to Americans. The retaliation would, would basically compound the harm. And then there may be this glimmer of hope of Chinese electric cars that we have to wait and evaluate. Uh, but, but overall, I think that it, it would be a terrible move for the economy. I would note that he got this idea from President Benjamin Harrison and then Chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, William McKinley. There, that's the where the McKinley Tariff Act gets its name. And the economy didn't do so well with Benjamin Harrison at the helm and the tariff wars uh, increasing. And a free trade Democrat named Grover Cleveland won the next election. 
So I just want to observe for everybody, all these people that Scott is talking about for their high tariff people are Republicans. Yes, that yeah, was their policy. And the Democrats are the uh, proponents of a more open trading system. Just keep that in mind, everybody. I have a feeling you guys are going to start talking about the chicken tax at any moment here. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's EU. We'll save that for another day. All right. All right. Thanks. Well, speaking of Section 232, the WTO panel held that China's retaliation for 232 duties is not justified. Bill, I feel a rant coming on. Well, what it demonstrates is that we are now in a situation with international trade rules where the sinners can keep on sinning because we don't have an appellate body to finally adjudicate these complaints. Trump imposed these tariffs on steel and aluminum. We were promptly sued at the WTO by, I think, five or six different countries alleging that they were illegal. Several of those cases were settled, but China and India was settled. I think the EU is the product of a negotiation that's going on. And there's been a ceasefire declared, but China was not settled. And I think, I think Turkey may not have been settled either. And the way it's been playing out is that two things happened. Uh, the countries that were unhappy that sued us simultaneously re retaliated against us. And their argument was, it's okay for us to retaliate against you because what you did was not a national security action, which is what Trump said. It was a safeguard action in, in disguise. In trade wonk terms, that means in the, from the GATT perspective, it was an Article 19 problem, not an Article 21 problem. Article 19 of the GATT says is a safeguard provision that allows you to take emergency action against imports if there's been basically a surge and a sudden increase that, that threatens you. Under the rules, these things are time limited and you have to pay compensation to the other countries. And if you don't do that, the other countries can retaliate. So what the uh, Chinese did and, and some of the others was retaliate. Uh, and then, of course, we sued them for also breaking the rules. And the Chinese argument, and this is the case that was just settled uh, recently, the Chinese argument was we're innocent because what the United States did was a safeguard Article 19 action in disguise. And because that's what it really was, we can retaliate. And the panel that reviewed the case said, no, you're wrong about that, that the United States took a national security action under Article 21. And the panel didn't pass judgment on whether the United States was right or not, because that wasn't the issue. The United States had already lost that case. When the Chinese brought a case against us for our tariffs, uh, we lost. That was the one where Ambassador Tai said, we're not going to comply, thereby you know, sort of thumbing her nose at the system, which still has me irritated. But these things were always pursued in, in tandem. So we lost, but then our case against China for retaliating against us comes up, and then they lost. So now we have two sinners. We appealed our loss, and what's called these days appealing in, uh, into the void because thanks to us, there's no appellate body to consider the appeal, but the right to repeal is still there, to appeal is still there. So we can keep on doing what we're doing and get away with it. The Chinese will probably do the same thing, that is, appeal the decision to the WTO. That will allow them to keep on doing what they're doing. This is not good for the trading system. One question that came up is, will it make us, cause us to think a little bit more carefully about our approach toward the appellate body and the WTO because we're losing? Oh, this one we won. 
but you know, it's one of these cases where you know we lost, and there's no appellate body, so we can't we can't have a second bite at the apple, if you will. In this case, we won, but we don't get anything because the Chinese are going to follow exactly the same tactics that we followed. So basically, both miscreants can keep on uh, violating the rules and get away with it, which has me profoundly depressed about the whole thing. It kind of means the rules don't mean a whole lot in this particular game. I found myself reading this story during the week, and I had a burst of nostalgia for the good old days when the WTO actually functioned effectively. In fact, I recall in my, when I was when it was my corporate job, comparing notes and, and occasionally meeting with uh, some of the other people who had responsibility for other international institutions within Procter & Gamble, that we kind of monitored what went on and looked for ways to, to make sure our issues were properly represented. And I always felt myself fortunate to be working with the WTO because here's an organization that has a set of rules which are mutually agreed that enforces those rules by mutual agreement. The system seemed to hang together at that point. It seemed to function a lot better than any of the other international organizations. I always felt bad for my colleague who did global corporate sustainability issues because he was working with all these UN bodies that couldn't get out of their own way. So I used to feel good about the WTO. Now it seems to have gone the way of every other international institution, which is it's a talk shop and doesn't doesn't really isn't able to get the will of its members to ensure that it's that it makes decisions and it, it enforces the rules that it has and it negotiates new rules in a way that that is constructive for the system. So I don't know what to say other than we've got a lot of talent over in Geneva that's not well utilized if they're not uh, negotiating. Well, it's sad because it was the only multilateral institution that I'm aware of that actually had a viable dispute settlement system. You could bring your complaints in and something would happen. There would be a decision. And if you didn't like it, you could appeal and then there would be a final decision. And then people would comply. And if they didn't comply, then you could retaliate. And that happened. So the system sort of, we worked, you know, and things ended one way or the other. And basically, the United States, more than anybody else, has tossed that into the trash can. I mean, I have to say they had good reasons for doing that because I think you can make the case that the appellate body exceeded its authority in, in the decisions that it made. But the consequences of what we have done is to destroy a system that actually was one of the few multilateral systems that was able to produce substantive outcomes rather than just talk. And it's sad that that's gone away. We say that we are trying to bring it back, that we want reform. We will see how far that gets. That's going to be on the agenda for the next ministerial meeting, which will be in uh, the end of February next year in Abu Dhabi. And uh, we'll see how far it gets. And I think as we get closer to that day, we'll probably have a lot more to say about it here. Okay, guys. Well, meanwhile, no Trade Guys podcast is complete without a discussion of tin mill steel. And we have a recent situation here where commerce has set duties on tin mill steel from China, Canada, and Germany. I mean, doesn't Canada have enough with all the wildfires this summer? We're going to set duties on tin mill steel? What, what, what's the deal here, guys? Well, they weren't very high. I think the Canadian duty was less than 6%, and the German duty was less than 8%. The outlier there was the Chinese duty, which was 122 plus percent. What people didn't notice in this, there were five other countries that were subject to the complaint. They all got off free. The department uh, determined preliminarily that they weren't dumping which suggests, among other things, that this was a pretty objective case. This was subject to a lot of political 
pressure. The plaintiff in this in this case was uh, Cleveland Cliffs, which is an Ohio company. Ohio is an important state in the forthcoming election. It's also a state that happens to have an important senatorial election coming up because it's one of only, I think, what, two or three states, I guess three states, where they have a Democratic senator in a state that Trump carried, in this case, Sherrod Brown. And that's going to be a tough race by all accounts. Uh, he has been vigorous in pushing the Commerce Department to find affirmative. As near as I can tell, what the Commerce Department did is exactly what they're supposed to do which is to ignore all the chaff in the wind and follow the law. And they let some people off the hook, and they got some people. And the main person they got, the main people they got were the Chinese. Uh, And the reason, and they were clear about this, the reason was the Chinese companies in question did not cooperate with the investigation. And under our law, which is a WTO-compatible law, if if the other company company doesn't cooperate, the commerce is allowed to use uh, what's called adverse facts available, adverse inferences. In other words, they take the evidence and the information where they can find it. I mean, people don't appreciate how complicated these cases are. If you're going to come in and say they're dumping their steel in our country, somebody has to decide if that's true. And in order to decide if it's true, you have to compare prices. You have to look at the price in the United States, and you have to look at the price in the home country. Or more often, you have to figure out how much it costs them to make it in the home country and figure out if they're selling below the cost of production. In order to figure out how much it costs to make it in that country, normally, you need the cooperation of the company that's making the steel. And you go and examine their books, and you look at their bills, and you figure out how much their iron ore cost, if it's if that's the way they're making steel, how much their electricity cost, what their wages were. And all these various things go into a calculation. If the company won't cooperate, and which is their right, or if their government won't let them cooperate, which has been known to happen, commerce does the best it can. And what it's allowed to do under the law is uh, take other sources of information. Well, it turns out most of the time, those other sources of information come from the people that are complaining. And so you could be pretty sure that what they're giving the Commerce Department is a very high number in terms of the amount of dumping that's going on. And that's what happened in this case, 122%. If that sticks, because this is preliminary, there will be a final finding early next year. If that sticks, they'll be out of the market. The Chinese company will be out of the market. You know, 5.6% or whatever it was for Canada, 7 something for the Germans. That's not fatal. It's not welcome either. But it's the way the system works. And I think, you know, I have people that know me know I always defend this because this is about unfair trade. This is not about protection. This is a people that are unfairly pricing their product below what it costs them to make it in order to capture market share. That's against U.S. law. It's against WTO rules. And we are simply making the system work the way it's supposed to. End of round. Look, it seems like an even-handed decision. I agree with Bill that the Commerce Department looks to me as if they evaluated this very carefully and applied tariffs where tariffs seem to be applied. And in terms of the uh, the lack of cooperation from the Chinese companies, well, that's what they get. Our system does work like that. At some level, I'm pleased that the tariffs aren't so high that it's going to affect the price of canned goods. Canned food is pretty important to a lot of families, particularly in the coming winter season. Food sold in metal cans uh, increases during the winter months, and food prices are high anyway. So I'm I'm glad to see this won't be a compounding effect on families that are struggling to pay their grocery bills. But it's it's so it sounds like we've spread the pain pretty equally, if there is any, but also made a decision that that is consistent with the law and the facts. It's really about canned food and canned pet food. So if you have dogs and cats, and you should probably be be concerned about this as well. 
But, you know, lest you feel too bad for the Canadians, don't. Because the same week they announced they're going to sue us because of our lumber tariffs. So uh, there are plenty of ways the Canadians can strike back. You know you're upsetting the Lippert family now, right? You know that. Which family? The Lipperts. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, some of the Lipperts are Canadian, and, you know, you got to watch it there, Bill. Is the one we're having on in a couple of weeks Canadian? <laughs> His wife is. Oh, Mark. We'll have okay. Ambassador Mark Lippert on very soon. And Mark's wife is a Canadian and a proud one at that. And now you've offended. I'm just trying to keep you clean here, Bill. My mother was Canadian. I would never offend Canadians. The bigger the trading relationship, the more disputes you're going to have. We have a great and very large trading relationship with Canada. And there's so there's stuff we fight about. They've invited me to uh, Banff next month. Oh, that's a nice place to be. Oh, go. It's a fabulous place. Give a speech Beautiful. about, uh, no, I think not about steel, and I hope not about lumber, but I hope more about supply chains and procurement, which is also something they're very concerned about because when any American administration starts talking about Buy America and the Buy American Act, the biggest victims are the Canadians because their economy is so integrated into ours. Well, we love the Canadians. We love the integration. And I'm glad you're going to Banff. I'm sure you'll mend fences when you're there. Trade guys, it has been great as always. Uh, listeners, remember, we will be off next week. And we will be back in September with more of the Trade Guys. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.